0: We only wasted (laughs) ten minutes. It's all right. It's not as bad as it usually is. The technicalities of recording a podcast—no one really tells you about. No, I was
1: like, oh, let's just record a podcast. It'll be great. Yeah.
0: (laughs) I like your "I've made a stupid decision" voice. It's the one I can least (laughs) replicate.
1: Yeah, but you look at people who are doing podcasting from their basement, and it's just like a—it's a wheelie chair. With a boom mic and a pop filter. Like it really is not that that big of a deal. I think that we could probably do a little bit better. Here I am in my basement, sitting on the floor
0: with my podcast mic right in front of me.
1: I, I don't know. Maybe it's time to upgrade the equipment a little bit.
0: I have got like an arm thing that comes out. Like, I know. that's pretty
1: good. You've got like big can headphones too. Like you look like a podcaster.
0: <laughs> I I'm not sure that's true.
1: I look like a vagrant, like a squatter. I'm hiding in the basement. <laughs> <laughs> recorded a segment for another podcast last year sometime and I ended up going into our clothing closet and because it's like, it is perfect sound deadening in there. You walk in there and there's just no there's no echo.
0: It was great. Oh, okay. So I think we have different ideas of what, what that looks like. In my head, right, because British houses are smaller than American houses. Oh, it
1: wasn't a wardrobe. I wasn't
0: lying Witch in the wardrobe like ending up in Narnia. Okay, oh, okay. right, okay. Like a small child hiding. <laughs> Hiding from, from someone in the bottom of a wardrobe. You're just talking to yourself in there. Your wife just walks over, opens the wardrobe. Michael, what the hell are you doing? You nailed it, by the way. She is one of the only people that calls me Michael. So good job. You got that exactly right. <laughs> All right, so should we, uh, should we pop into some Watchtower Weekly here? I think so, yeah. The first one is, is that Sony announces its bug bounty program. Yes. I have to say, if there is one thing... That
1: any company can do to sort of give me more confidence in their approach to security, it is standing up a bug bounty program because it directly incentivizes or de-incentivizes the company, however you look at it, to not have security issues. Because it's like we are going to pay people that are going to find the problems with our systems. And I think that this is such a a great idea for any company to do. Uh, And it's nice to hear that that Sony is doing this. This was reported through uh, Sophos.com. Sony recently announced bug bounty programs for the PS4 and the PlayStation Network saying, quote, we believe that through working with the security research community we can deliver a safer place to play. We have partnered with HackerOne to help run this program and we are inviting the security research community, gamers, and anyone else to test the security of PS4 and PlayStation Network. Our bug bounty program has rewards for various issues including critical issues on PlayStation 4. Critical vulnerabilities for PS4 have Bounties starting starting at fifty thousand dollars. That's awesome. Like how great.
0: Yeah. You know, just looking at this from a, a security lens is great. But like looking at it from a person who builds software lens, like this is gonna help so much. Just think of all the people that are in these networks that would help. With something this prestigious, right? Yeah, I think they're going to catch all kinds of bugs that they hadn't thought about. I
1: think they are, and I'm, I'm not trying to slag off on Sony here. I think that there might be a bit of a like a an influx of critical vulnerabilities in the beginning. I think that people may find some. <laughs> I think that there may be some low hanging fruit. Let me put it that
0: way. Oh yeah, I think that's probably true. They've also got you know a major platform coming out sometime this year. Is it this year? the... PS five comes out. Oh my
1: gosh. It's this it is supposedly this year and I'm gonna buy one right away. Day one.
0: Yeah, 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 me too. I think the thing that most makes me feel old is that I started on the PlayStation (laughs) One. And they're now on five. And it's been like one release every four years or something, hasn't it? Like it's Yep. Oh, yeah yeah do you um do you think bug bounties are kind of becoming more mainstream? I don't think that we hear about them enough.
1: I really don't i I believe that they're starting to pick up a little bit of steam, but i I think that they've got a long way to go to be sort of the norm.
0: I think that community can also grow yeah the 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 hacker one, the bug crowd, all of these programs you know they they have a decent amount of talented people in there, but there's room for growth there, yep, absolutely.
1: Uh, how about Google? Google will delete your data by default. In 18 months. Boy, this is just a clickbaity headline if I've ever seen one wired. I mean, really, like, come on. Starting today, the search giant will make a previously opt in auto delete feature the norm. At its Worldwide Developer Conference in late June, Apple introduced a litany of new security and privacy features that fit into what the company calls its four privacy principles. Today, Google is announcing its own privacy-focused improvements as well under what the Google CEO Sundar Pichai says are, quote, three important principles of privacy. So, Is it
0: because they've missed off tracking? <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Is it cuz they've missed off like advertising? Yeah, almost certainly,
1: right? <laughs> we're not we're not ready to seed uh ad tracking. Sorry. Google already announced security and privacy upgrades to Android 11 earlier this month, but Wednesday's changes focus on the data that Google services like Maps and YouTube can access and how long they keep it for. So this this must be metadata i'm assuming sort of like usage information and stuff like that this isn't this isn't people's data like they're not going to go and like delete your posted youtube videos this is about
0: yeah i I don't think this is the kind of stuff that you really you really need right right this is like uh your youtube search history yeah and and once you've searched five things and and the list goes to five or whatever it goes to these days like that sixth thing you're you're not thinking ah. I'm just going to have to go back and find that like this is kind of stuff that is kept around, I think, purely for building your your persona reasons. Yes. So it's really nice that they're removing this. I don't think that it means that they will actually uh, remove the interpretation of this information. As in, like, they are still going to use this to, to profile you, and then, you know, this information kind of keeps in your profile? Oh, absolutely.
1: It's very interesting, right? Like, 18 months is still an age in internet time. Oh, yeah. And you're right, it doesn't doesn't change how they're using it, and, and what they're going to do with it. But... I, I still
0: think it's pretty good. It's a, it's a step in the right direction. It is a step in the right direction. Yes. I hate to be that one who searches something and then thinks, ah. Oh. I forgot to put on, you know, safe search or something like that. And I realize I've made an innuendo. Yeah. The the rest of the internet seems to appreciate and I did not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: It's like, how long is that Macho Man Randy Savage search going to come back and and bite me, you know, for the next... It's only 18 months now. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, yeah, neat. Apple catches TikTok secretly spying on millions of iPhone users. I mean, okay. Again. That's another clickbaity headline. Come on,
0: Forbes. So this is with a feature in iOS 14 that it kind of pops a little toast warning on the screen saying whenever an app reads the last thing in the clipboard. Yep. A number of apps, it was not just TikTok, have been using that copy the clipboard, see what's on it, paste it back, that type of activity to do features to do things like, do you have a URL on the clipboard? Should we react to that somehow? Yeah. Yes, they could be using it to secretly spy. Yes, they could be secretly spying in a million other ways. <laughs> um, I, I actually think this has been massively blown out of proportion. Yeah. I think the the visuals of this are great because the screen recordings of you know the toast popping up like every time you hit a character, because it's checking whether you've got anything on the clipboard. Honestly, this is one of the times where I feel like it's not snooping. (laughs) Like, it's probably fine. It is probably looking for things like, you know, URLs on the clipboard or something similar. According to TikTok, the issue is triggered by a feature designed to identify repetitive spammy behavior. So they're actually using it to, like, catch people who are pasting something onto the clipboard and putting that in every one of their videos. Interesting. So, uh, yeah, it's already submitted an updated version into the App Store, removing the anti-spam feature to eliminate any potential confusion. Yeah, I think the visuals of this look worse than the reality.
1: At the end of the day, this is one of those things where Apple took a step to make certain types of behavior more transparent to the user in a very unobtrusive way, and immediately highlighted a bunch of of usage that made people go, why is it doing that though? And it's causing a change in behavior. Like this is beta software. Like this was just announced a couple weeks ago and companies are already pushing out updates that like, oh yeah, no, we're not gonna do this anymore. Like either they've been sort of caught doing something they weren't supposed to and people are, are sort of up in arms about it or, or calling them out on it, I should say. Or this was something that was completely fi- like uh, innocuous but still, they're like, well, the optics of this don't look good, even though we weren't doing this for any nefarious reason." So we're going to change it to make sure that we're doing this the right way or doing this the safe way. 1Password, we have some instances where we also, like this notification flags for us because we do scan the clipboard for various pieces of data when the app launches. For instance, one of the things we look for is an ad account. Uh, URL. We have a, sp- a special URL that allows someone to sign into an account and it contains like account metadata. And so we scan the clipboard to see if that thing is on there when the app first starts up. Or we do look for URLs uh, because you know we can take actions on-, on URLs that might be on the clipboard. So there were times when we were, you'll see that notification when you're using one password. Again, no nefarious reasons. We had very good reasons at the time we put that code in But we're also looking at all of those instances now and saying like, oh, is this actually needed? Is there a better way to do this? Maybe we don't need this at all. And, you know, 1Password is now an app that the code that that is running in 1Password now on your iPhone is like a decade old. So we've made choices over the last decade that it's like, oh, yeah, that's still in there. We should probably
0: clear that out. Yeah, I think, you know, when iOS 14 is released uh, in the fall, I think there'll be a lot fewer apps that are doing this. Yeah, I think so, too. Did you talk to Troy? We did, yeah. It was a bit too early in the morning for you, uh, so you didn't You didn't turn up at what? What was it for you? About four? About four, yeah. I mean, four isn't too bad. You can wake up at four. I wake up, have a beer with Troy,
1: you know. I, <laughs> <laughs> that's cool, though. I'm glad. I, I think I've only gotten to talk to Troy, like, once. You two are buddies. Uh, I, I don't really have that kind of relationship with him, unfortunately. Yeah,
0: we, we did go mini-scootering I love it. in Norway once. <laughs> Which is which is still uh, a very amusing thing because there are tram tracks in Norway, like Toronto does. So we were mini-scootering along and uh, we don't have them in, in England because they're illegal. You, you can't ride motorized vehicles that aren't licensed.
1: So you're talking like electric scooters, like the kind you just find on the street in San Jose? Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, those. Yeah, okay. Uh, yep. We don't have those. They're illegal for some reason that the law came in in the 1800s but anyway oh my they're incredibly dangerous over tram lines and there was troy and our, our ceo jeff plowing over these tram lines like basically jumping a deep canyon in the road uh, and there was me basically stepping off pushing my scooter over by hand and then getting back on it and i, I think i looked rather ridiculous and
1: getting left in the dust
0: yes oh yeah those <laughs> things fly <laughs>
1: that's fantastic
0: <laughs> So Troy needs no introduction, but we'll give him one anyway. He is the creator of Have I Been Pwned, an all-round security expert as well as regional director at Microsoft. Troy has worked alongside 1Password for many years and has joined us on the podcast before and in one of our first ever episodes, I think. So it's great to have him with us today.
2: Well, thank you very much for having me back. And in fact, I was talking to, uh, to someone else in another interview about 1Password today. And so, you know, we've got this good relationship and, you know, the 1Password appears there on the front page of Have I Been Pwned. But I still pay for it, <laughs> you know, like I still go out and buy it every year with my own money, as
0: I had always done before we had a relationship. That's great. So I'm, I'm actually going to dive straight into the fact that it's been 18 months since we last talked. And has anything changed about then uh, with, with data breaches? Right? <laughs> I, I mean, a lot's changed <laughs> in the world. What has changed specifically about about data breaches? Are there any uh, new trends or new surprises? I see we've had quite a few in, in this month alone.
2: Well, you know, the immediate thing that comes to mind is I'm seeing a lot more breaches of Elasticsearch instances. And we, we almost seem to sort of go through phases, right, where a few years ago it was it was Amazon S3 buckets left open. And then obviously uh, Amazon made a bunch of changes around highlighting and making more visible the fact that you might have a bucket open and and you shouldn't. And that sort of got better. And then there was a whole bunch of uh, MongoDB and there was a period there where people were just sort of finding MongoDB exposed via indexes such as Shodan and then just ripping them apart. And now Elasticsearch seems to be the new thing. And I kind of wonder if it's as a new technology gets traction and popularity, everyone jumps on it very quickly. And then later on, they go, oh, yeah, 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 uh, passwords, (laughs) you know, on on our MongoDBs and our Elasticsearches and things like that. But it seems to almost take a while for
0: good security posture to catch up with the technology. So would you say it's more kind of, you know, people leaving settings undone than like a popular vulnerability that gets exploited on every kind of single instance of that? Because I do see a lot of You know, when a vulnerability is is made popular, (laughs) I'm going to say, the amount of instances of that getting exploited is quite high. Do you think it's similar or do you think it's it's something to do with not that much education around when these things are are left open or not?
2: Well, I mean, in, in these cases,
0: we're talking about configuration, right? Like people have just literally not put passwords
2: on their things. But it's a little bit more nuanced than that as well because... By virtue of someone else being able to pull that database off the internet, it means that not only did they not have a password on it, but it was sat there facing the public internet as well. And as much as I can sort of be a little bit sympathetic to how easy it is to make one configuration change that's wrong, I think there's a bigger picture here around do we really want just a single point of failure, which is having a missing password, or should this thing be in a DMZ or something like that as well where it's not actually sitting
0: there facing the World Wide Web? So the thing that I want to talk to you today kind of specifically about is kind of assessing all the breaches on a single domain and what that means in kind of a a business sense and really a, a domain sense as well. So for those that you know don't know, on 1Password and in Have I Been Boned, you can check every mail address in your company to see which have been exposed in a known data breach and take action to keep your data safe. So, I mean, what wins have you seen from this feature?
2: It's really fascinating that the things that an organization can learn when they see the exposure of accounts on their domain in, in breaches. And there's sort of two immediate examples that come to mind, and these are real world Tales from the trenches. (laughs) And one of them was, after the Dropbox data breach, I remember a whole bunch of companies going, well, isn't that interesting? We're not meant to have like cloud sharing services that aren't approved by IT inside the organization, yet we've got 20 different Dropbox accounts. How on earth did that happen? And that, of course, then raises all sorts of other questions around how are they able to install this on their PCs? How was the traffic able to get out through firewalls? But that was one of the things that sort of struck me, the visibility into the sorts of services that people might be using, which could put the organization at risk. And then the other one, which is, uh, I think it's fair to say the most notorious data breach that we've seen to date was around Ashley Madison. And imagine the discussions people in organisations had to have around that. And look, all the salaciousness of it aside for a moment, I just found it really fascinating watching the way different organisations handled this. So some companies said, "Okay, well we've just identified you know a few dozen people in the company, depending on the size of it." And I tell you what, some of those big companies had a lot of Ashley Madison people on it. But then they have to have this discussion about what do we do now. Some companies I spoke with said, look, we just don't even want to have that discussion. Like, it's just it's way, way, way too uncomfortable for us. It's, it just opens up all sorts of issues, HR, so on and so forth. Other companies said, look, we are going to contact anyone who we feel is a high-risk individual or puts the company at risk, such as uh, an executive. Because, yeah, there's a lot of blackmail scams that came out of this later on. In other cases, I've, I saw organisations say, well, actually, we identified a few guys in the warehouse and they seem to be in a lot of data breaches of that sort of nature. So we've, we've actually identified a different problem that we have in a corner of the organisation. So I think it's, it's fascinating, these sort of unintended consequences of data breaches and, and some of the things the
0: organisations learn. And I think it does become the organization's problem when you use a work email to sign up for these things. Mm. It does kind of transfer a bit of ownership of the problem, I think. Well,
2: it, it does because the workplace gets somewhat implicated in it because people are evidently using the service on work time or at the very least on work equipment. So what does that then mean? And it's, it's also not clear cut. One of the responses I remember actually about Ashley Madison is, is someone said, look, this is ultimately a relationship website, and okay, there's a very particular sort of relationship, but it's a relationship website, (laughs) that is within the realms of our acceptable use policy. Now, evidently, there's lots of cultural differences around different parts of the world as to how they might view that sort of thing. But, you know, like fair play, this was their position on it. So I I thought that was kind of fascinating as well, because many organisations do have a concept of people being able to use certain non-work-related services. Maybe they do their banking over their lunch or something like that. If it's, let's say, a more mainstream dating service, maybe they want to do a bit of Tinder in their coffee break. Maybe that is okay. So it's it's just sort of interesting how different, different organisations
0: are as well. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. We use mostly our laptops for everything i mean personally i i have one laptop and i do both work and everything else on there not actually madison but (laughs) you know it's the 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 lines between that are, are slipping and i i think one of the things about breaches on a on a single domain and this feature as a whole it really does allow that kind of insight into actual issues without kind of being prying, without, you know, invading the the privacy of, of employees. These things are, are public anyway. That's an interesting line that this report doesn't cross. It's interesting, even the position of
2: public, because it then opens up this whole other can of worms is just because the data is out there does it mean that an organisation, for example, should be able to, to pull it and see which of their employees might have been in a, in a breach. But then you look at it from the other side and you go, well, it's kind of the organization's email and they really do own the email and remember all the terms and conditions that you agreed to when you Took the job, yeah. yeah the, there was a bit in there about the company owning the email, but yeah, then privacy and it's look. I mean, it's, it's a fascinating area, and it's, it's a lot more nuanced and multifaceted than what I think most people think it is. So,
0: when a company runs a, a report like this and kind of finds out all the information that they need to you know a corner of the organization are using dropbox they have a bunch of people inside a data breach you know fudora for example was was the most recent one you know people using that in their work time with a work email address that's completely an acceptable thing that that is likely to happen that is completely aside from it right no one is going to go you know hey Guys, we're, we're going to use Foodora, not Uber Eats, and that's that's a company decision. Correct. But it still is something that happens on a work computer. What's the kind of action that someone should take after that?
2: In terms of an individual
0: within an organisation who's been in a breach like that? I think really from the, the person who is running that report, like the admin. Oh, right, yeah,
2: in the organisation. My view of it is that this always presents an opportunity for the organisation to have a discussion around password hygiene and online accounts and all these sorts of things. So let's let's pick the most benign website we can think of. Imagine it's like catforum.com which gets breached and someone in the workplace has a cat and they had an account on this site. Even though I, I see that as very, very low risk for the organisation, other than the potential for password reuse, which we know happens a lot, I would love to see whoever is responsible for running that report in the organisation reach out to the individual and go, hey, look, you've actually appeared in a data breach. And, you know, like that's, that's cool, happens to all of us. <laughs> However, have you thought about the impact of password reuse or your personal data being exposed? You know, like use this as a, as a teachable moment, as they'd say, to be able to communicate around what is actually happening out there. So I, I think that that actually presents a very positive opportunity, even if it doesn't necessarily present any near and immediate risk to the organization.
0: Yeah, and so with this feature inside 1Password, what we're hoping to do is highlight those people that have been in a data breach and then separate them. So these are the people that use 1Password and these are the people that don't use 1Password in your your organization. And these top people, they might want information about this. They might actually not know. So the ability to email all of these people and be like, actually, you should join our company on on 1Password and and you should use this to generate different passwords from what you have. And, yeah, I think it's going to be huge, that kind of action on the end that kind of allows a company to really mitigate this in the best way possible. Well,
2: one of the the things I really like about the idea of a a domain search is, you know, pick even a a medium-sized company that might have, let's say, 10,000 people in there. The the chances are a fairly sizable number of those people are going to have been in a data breach. And if, if we can sort of get that one company getting access to these reports, the reach of have I been pwned is now significantly greater than what it would have been had A few of those people popped up and individually subscribed to notifications. So I love the idea of this being able to just create greater reach and greater awareness by virtue of getting those little footholds within organisations doing domain searches.
0: Exactly, yeah. Even the the Foodora one, we're fairly small, but I think a couple of us got caught in that with work emails as well because... What else are you going to sign up for in a lunchtime?
2: (laughs) And this is the thing. It's sort of one of those cases where it's like, yeah, that is perfectly reasonable. Sometimes you might want to order lunch. I think by any reasonable definition fits within the realm of acceptable use. You know, having said that, everyone's got a mobile device in their pocket these days, but that might be a company asset as well. So do you use that? And then do you just have the, ah, you go down this rabbit hole.
0: Look, there's data everywhere. (laughs) Let's just agree on that. That does bring me up of the, uh, the next question. What can we do to stop these happening at a software company level? What's the things that we should take that perhaps 1Password takes incredibly serious, but other companies, that might not be their priority? What's the things that we can do to really highlight inside our companies? to stop these data breaches? I
2: think it really depends on which part of the problem we're looking at. So are we looking at the part of the problem, which is that there are security vulnerabilities or as we discussed earlier, misconfigurations and we sort of tackle it at the source? Or are we looking at the other part of it, which is, look, we're, we're going to be pwned as individuals. What can we do in advance to mitigate the risk of that? I think both are probably worthy discussions and just to put them both succinctly, the first part is very much around combination of training of the software professionals and the sysadmins who are responsible for these systems as as well as more automation around things like monitoring. Do we have any new devices suddenly stood up on company assets or, or on company cloud services? There's a sort of a good starting point there. And then, of course, for individuals, being very conscious about how much information is shared where. I used catforum.com as an example before. That is actually a real site. The reason I asked a real site is I wanted to pick sort of the most simple, least offensive, most mundane service I could think of, so I know, okay, cats. And one of the things that happens when you sign up for catforum.com is it says, would you like to leave your date of birth? And I'm looking at it going... They're cats. Who cares about your date of birth? This is not about you. It's about the cats. Why do you have to leave your date of birth? The direction I'm going here is that this is a point where people do provide excessive information about themselves. If you leave your date of birth, you have just leaked a piece of static knowledge-based authentication data that is used for identity verification in a whole bunch of different places. Let's minimise the data we provide. So as an individual trying to be preemptive about minimising their impact in data breaches, don't provide info you don't need to provide.
0: That's great advice. And I would have signed up for Cats Forum. I, I really wanted that email on my birthday. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's actually, I'll give you a funny anecdote on that. Often I've tweeted this and I've said, why, why? I've just got this data written all these dates of birth. And people pop up and they say, ah, it's because of COPPA, the Child Online Protection Act. And I'll go, well, okay, so COPPA, you know, 13 years old, all this sort of stuff. Why don't you just ask the person how old they are rather than asking them for the date of birth? And then people on the internet go, they could lie. (laughs) And I'm sort of going, (laughs) they could lie anyway. Like, why are you doing this? And then then people say, oh, apparently, and I, I don't know if this is true or not, but apparently you actually need to request the date of birth. You can't just say, are you older than this age or not? So I said, all right, do this. Request the date of birth. And then use mathematics to figure out whether they're old enough. And if they are, you let them in. And if they're not, you don't. But you don't need to store the date of birth.
0: That's very true. I I think there's a number of different ways that we can do that as well. Like as developers, kind of not storing that data, but using it initially and then throwing it away. I think people are almost scared to throw away data these days because it can be used for things like references of, of letting people back into accounts. But I don't think people are understanding like how much data is out there and how much we are just feeding it all the time. So
2: there's an interesting anecdote I got given before I I testified in Congress and I I sort of said to people, look, what should I say? And and someone gave me a quote, which I did actually use. And the quote was, organisations tend to look at user data as an asset and never as a liability. And when it's so cheap to store data and it's so easy to collect it and you can have so much of it, you can see why organisations do that. But they never look forward to the point where Maybe something goes wrong and we lose that. So do we actually really need it in the first place? And I just thought it was a really insightful comment I got on that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Is there anything else that you see kind of looming on the horizon of technology at the moment that affects our online safety? I mean, either for, for better or worse.
2: <laughs> oh, definitely IoT. IoT. And I say this absolutely eyeballs deep in trying to make IoT work in my house (laughs) right now. It is amazing what a fragmented mess this is, just trying to make good stuff work, let alone how bad the bad stuff is. My dream two months ago was uh, I wanted to automate the opening of my garage door. I wanted to be able to ask Siri and say, hey, and I just open the door. And I thought, oh, this will be good. It'll be like the comment I made before. There'll be a whole stream of questions or responses rather that, you know, 60, 70% of them all say, go and do this one thing. And they're all over the place. And I am now two months then and I'm literally sitting here at my desk surrounded by little bits of IoT devices combined with Raspberry Pis and open source software and bridges to try and get back to Apple Home Assistant, which I have to do with, or HomeKit, which I have to do with the bridge from the Raspberry Pi and a lot of YAML. And I'm just going, oh my God, okay, it's kind of cool, but what a fragmented mess. And then the stuff that's in there, I just know no one's ever taken a serious look at it (laughs) security-wise because I've been involved. In so many iot data breaches before everything from the cloud pets to the nissan leafs that you could control with just a vin number through to last year it was kids gps tracking watches they're just like consistently terrible so i think i think i got a long and fruitful career ahead of me <laughs>
0: yet <laughs> even if you specialize in in iot is there kind of a balance of risk with iot depending on like how much it is connected to the internet versus how much it is kind of on your local network.
2: Yeah, and and look again, there are multiple things that we can do to mitigate risk here. So in days gone by, I have had a dedicated IoT VLAN within my house. So I've got a whole bunch of Ubiquiti hardware in here uh, so that they make wireless access points and controls and things, which makes it easier to VLAN stuff. But... That is painful in all sorts of ways, mostly because it's, it's fine to sort of VLAN off, say, your IoT devices, put them on their own SSID, etc. But then you get things like my Sonos, and Sonos uses some sort of funky implementation of multicast where it needs to be able to communicate back to the network that the controlling device, such as my iPhone, is on. So it's got to be able to see back in. And then you try and add a new device, and a lot of IoT things want to be added by inheriting the Wi-Fi settings of the network that, say, your phone is on. So, okay, that makes that hard. So really doing something like a VLAN is is not going to be a consumer-centric thing. Now, I think a much more practical thing, and it sort of comes back to my point before about just not providing things or digitizing things that you don't want to lose... I've got some cameras around the place. In fact, I've got ubiquity cameras. And I very consciously have not put any inside the house. None of them actually point at places that would, let's say, cause me discomfort were they to be public. And I'll give you a very specific example. So I've got one that that overlooks my pool. And it's, I don't really want to look at the pool. I want to look at the pathway next to the pool. So I've sort of angled it away from the pool. And then I've used one of the features where when there's the corner of the pool, you can actually draw like a private zone over it. You can draw some sort of polygon, which then literally gets imprinted on the video. And it, it's simply because if my kids are there playing in the pool and someone else does get access to that camera, I don't really want them seeing my kids playing around in the pool. So I think it's one of these things where we have a combination of like technical controls, which can be a bit geeky, such as the VLAN, and some pretty common sense things as well, such as where do you point your cameras?
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. I'm I'm sure we could speak all day about ubiquity and (laughs) how to get coverage in a house. The previous house that I lived in had kind of metal mesh inside the walls. I have no idea why. Oh, geez. But essentially it created like a thing in the front room where you could not get mobile signal and you could not get Wi-Fi inside that room. Or if it was inside that room, you could not get it outside the room. It wasn't quite a Faraday cage, but it was almost. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, I'm full on board with the ubiquity and kind of spreading that throughout these old awful houses as much as possible in England. Nice. <laughs> so I, I think that's, kind of all we've got time for right? honestly as, as I mentioned I, you know, we could talk about ubiquity all day but um, is there anywhere you know listeners can go to find out more information about you or follow you online yeah look the the two obvious places are Troyhunt.com so
2: anything of any significance I, I put there and Twitter which is at Troyhunt speaking of significance I just got the new Lego version of the Lamborghini and you'll see a lot on there if you jump over to at Troyhunt on Twitter right now as I sit <laughs>
0: on my dining table and build Lego I very much appreciate that All right, how about a little ask1password
1: today? I see that we have some traffic here. So at disciple underscore dev found a little graphic on our website and wrote in and said, can you actually make this work in the app? This would be a fun Easter egg. And it's a a slot machine style password generator that we have just as a a hand-drawn graphic on the web page. And, you know, the idea is, oh, you pull the crank and then you get, like, you know, each each of the slot machine things would make up a character in the password. And, like it's fun like that would be that would be fun to
0: make i think that's a pretty cool thing that we could possibly make but would take very long, like loads of time i i'd really like to though i think making small little interactions like that that have a bit of joy and and excitement to them some fun i'm really trying to to push that you know we're we're growing as a company and some of the things that we used to do that were really fun obviously kind of move aside for supporting better and that type of stuff and and I think we can all push inside the company to make using one password a bit more joyful. All right. How about a giveaway? So I yeah, apparently we have a giveaway where we want someone to suggest a segment uh to replace real or not real. I'm I'm not sad that real or not real is going. I think it's played its part. It has. Yes. Yeah. And you're doing the one this week, right? So I think that's going to be the nail in the coffin. I think really.
1: it's it, yeah. Like if it's come to the point where I'm the one that's having to come up with the real or not reels, you know that it's at its end. That's
0: the death. <laughs> so our, our favorite, we're going to send some some swag out. I've got like a stock stockpile here. So uh, yeah, use the ask one password hashtag or, or email us at media at one And yeah, depending on the day, I might answer that email uh, or someone else might do it. Yeah. So I I think it's time for the uh, real or not real. Rue edition, possibly the penultimate time that we've ever played this game. I think I think this might be it. Yeah. Um. So this one requires uh, there's a bit of domain knowledge uh, in this one, and I did include a link. Okay. Well, uh, I'm I'm glad that we both come from you know fairly separate cultures, and and <laughs> so, so I have no idea of <laughs> of things that you have an idea uh, of. Uh, so first of
1: all, do you know what dum-dums are? I don't know. Okay. Well, go ahead and just click the link. Okay. They are small. I have to describe it for everyone now. Apparently, Uh, Dum Dums are small lollipops here in the United States. They are ubiquitous. Almost any child, any person in the in the states will know what a Dum Dum is. Uh, They're just small lollipops.
0: Okay. Okay. And they come in
1: lots of different flavors. One of the flavors of Dum Dum is mystery flavor. So, like, there's every Dum Dum has it's individually wrapped, and it has you know strawberry or like tangerine, you know whatever, Um, blue raspberry. And then there is a mystery flavor of dum-dum. Like you get, you pull it out of the bag and it says mystery on it. It's got a question mark on the wrapper and the flavor is a mystery. Okay. Mystery flavor dum-dums are made when the factory switches from one flavor production run to another and are the result of combining the end of one flavor's mix with the start of the next flavor's
0: mix. Oh, okay. So picture you have a candy factory. That candy
1: factory churns out. Hard candies
0: of various flavors. I mean, surely you can make a really bad mistake there. Because the the two that I'm looking at are cotton candy and sour apple. Mm-hmm. Mix those two together. That sounds grim. I mean, maybe, but it's also all just sugar. I, I've also done the maths. For $100, which is like, I don't know, I can buy 30 pounds of these lollipops. And that's 1.3 million calories. Yeah. That sounds right. Yeah, that, that I mean, that's a bit more than my daily allowance, I think. So yes, that's wild. Yeah, we have a we have a sack of these upstairs in the pantry right now because
1: it's quarantine, and so I just buy like random fun foods to eat to make us feel something. <laughs> <laughs> Dum dums were one of those things.
0: I'm gonna say this is true because are there multiple mystery flavors? Because there would be like a different. You wouldn't be like, mm, I I like this mystery flavor because it would be different every time because they change from different things to different things. Correct. So the the way that they must create that mystery flavor is be like, yeah, let's uh, let's change the vat of corn syrup. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yes, this is true. Uh,
1: this is how, so instead of like stopping a production run and cleaning the machine out and, and like then going on to the next flavor and have that be a pure thing, it's an amalgamation of the end of one run and
0: the beginning of another. It's kind of genius, really.
1: It really is, yeah. It's Otherwise, like what, they end up with like, Quarter batches that they just have to throw away. Like, what a great way to sort of capitalize on on what would otherwise be sort of a a cast off. Well, listen, this was a callback to how this show started, Matt. Just you
0: and me recording for far
1: too long and having to cut way too much out. Yep. But (laughs) uh, so it was. It was nice. But I miss Anna. There's something about her presence that grounds us. Yes.
0: So yeah. Until the next time. Love you, Matt. Love you very much. It's been a pleasure potting with
1: you. Agreed. Agreed. I can't wait to cast again. Bye-bye.